0: and welcome back to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I'm here with the author of many things, um, of fiction, music writing, lots of different types of journalistic writing, of, yeah, fiction, as I said, and a really exciting book about one of my favorite TV shows today. Uh, So let's hop right into it. Uh, Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please?
1: Hello, I am Bernadette Giacomazzo. I am the author of The Golden Girls, A Cultural History, which is out now on Roman and Littlefield Press. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me.
0: No problem. Um, Yeah, this book was amazing like as I said right before we started recording like I have been a a show a fan of the show for a very long time I did not think I had that much to learn and I I do I had a lot to learn and this book taught me so much um but before we get into the book itself I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like your career and how it led you to this book because as I mentioned you've written a lot of really cool things and you've done a lot of really cool stuff so could you talk about maybe how that led you here
1: yes well um I am an editor, writer, photographer, publicist, and all around industry geek. Been that way for about 25 years or so. Um, I have uh, written for a variety of publications. My work has been featured in everything from People and Team Vogue, Us Weekly, the Los Angeles Times, New York Post, um, to more niche publications, excuse me, like um, Hip Hop The X, which is where um, I currently call home. Um, fan-sided, which is also where I call home, and um, a couple of other cool um, places in the hip-hop industry. How did I get to write this book? <laughs> um, a friend of mine, uh, Bob Batchelor, had said that um, Roman and Littlefield was looking to reignite their cultural history of television series. Um, it had taken on um, a different tenor than what they had wanted in the past, They took um, a very academic approach to television, and unfortunately it fell flat. Even though the writers were extremely talented and they were some of the most brilliant writers of our generation, they were all professors, and so they took a very academic approach to um, television, and that's not really what um, television or really just any kind of pop culture um, thing, film, film, Um, podcasts, video games, you you really can't take a hardcore academic approach to it. You have to take a combination of academia and um, trade writing and uh, commercial writing. You have to appeal to people while also teaching them something new. So that was the approach that I had taken. And I had pitched two books to them. Um, The first was In Living Color, which was released back in February. And the second was The Golden Girls, which was released in August. And um, that approach turned out to be the, the smarter move and the Cultural History of Intelligence Series is back up and running. Um, and uh, that, that's kind of how I got connected with Roman and Littlefield. And next year, I will actually, in 2025, I should say, I will be releasing Law and Order, a Cultural History also on uh, Roman and Littlefield. Oh. So I'm very happy with how it sort of has taken on a life of its own, while also giving a whole new insight into... The Golden
0: Girls. Wow. That's like a really interesting trio of shows to treat. Um yes. we're talking about in Living Color. I'm like, yeah, these are, you know, Golden Girls and in Living Color. We're dealing with like hot button topics like in a comedic way. And then with Law and Order, too, has just like for decades been like reflecting the culture kind of back to us, you know. So, yes.
1: But, yes.
0: Um, so yeah, and in terms of this book, um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned right in the beginning, um, you give a quote from Susan Harris, the creator, and she mm-hmm. said that the show paints a picture of all of the possibilities for family. And that immediately struck me so much because I think it speaks to two things that are super core to your book, which is that one, it was like speaking to an audience of like older single women for the first time. And was, like, also talking to, um, like, a queer audience for the first time, too. So could you talk a little bit about, like, you know, maybe, like, yeah, like, like, talk about the show in this lens of, like, how it is portraying alternatives to family and, like, new possibilities for uh, society, perhaps.
1: Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, as I mentioned in the book, um, queer culture as we know it today was... First, starting to bubble up from the underground um, in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. But it was not um, as mainstream as it is today. Mm-hmm. You have to remember that, you know, what we consider like, for example, different houses like the house of La Beja, the house of Ninja, the house of um, the house, you know, anything that we know as the house, the like house of extravaganza, anything we know is like a house in um, queer culture what wasn't actually just a thing where it was just a collective of people coming together and being you know fashionable and going to balls together and that sort of thing there was a real need for the house in queer culture um because at that time these kids were being thrown out in mass by their families they were um they were not accepted they were not welcomed they were, not, um, they were not embraced by their families. And so when they were out on the street, what would end up happening is they would have to find a, a way to survive on their own. That is where house culture came from. And that is where we started learning terms, for example, like the mother of the house, the father of the house. Because... These gay folks really did take on that role of mother and father and all of the, the, uh, the charges, for lack of a better opinion, that they had under them were their children. That is really the origin of those terms. Now, at the time, people didn't really know or understand that. In culture. They did not know or understand or accept that even in mainstream culture. We're talking about, you know, the 1980s for, you know, I don't have to say this to people that were alive at the time and who remember it and who experienced it. But I do have to say it for people who are younger, who don't have an understanding of that world. We're talking about a time when Ronald Reagan was president. And we're talking about a time that his press secretary was cracking jokes about AIDS at the expense of gay people and the press corps were laughing along with it. We're not talking about, you know, times of today with Corinne Jean-Pierre and, you know, people pushing back and her pushing back and her putting people in their place. We are talking about a time when it was very white male dominated and misogynistic and homophobic and that sort of ultra conservatism that many people look at as, sort of an anomaly to being a conservative today is very much, you know, what was the accepted norm. So to counter that, Susan Harris said, well, maybe I can't do things about like a house because that's not really it, but I can show family in another way. And sometimes, you know, even on a more simple level, family sometimes isn't what you're born into. It's what you find. And that is just as important in your life as your blood family, because there are plenty of people that come from blood families that don't accept them, that um, disown them for stupid reasons, that are abusive, that are ignorant, that are just not there for them in the way that they need to be. And that's how she created the Golden Girls. And you add that additional layer of her speaking to older women, which I also talk about in the book, who at the time were very much viewed as matronly and matriarchs and having no identity outside of their husband and 2.3 kids and the dog and the white picket fence. That was the depiction of women on television. If she didn't have a home and she didn't have a family, she was kind of like an anomaly. And even in the 70s, when we had things like... um, the Mary Tyler Moore show. She was the outlier. She was not the norm. When we had, um, you know, d- different people that were like single women and like, oh, yeah, we're bringing on on. Look how many strides we made in the late 1970s. Oh, well, guess what? At the end of the show, she got married. So, you know, there she goes right back into the white picket fence house. And you know, come on now. Mm-hmm. And so we don't we didn't we didn't fathom a time back then when we would have like sex in the city and single vibrant women dating. We didn't fathom a time that you know, it was living single, you know, four women roommates living good, and they were all professionals and high-powered and just going through life. Girlfriends, we didn't think about that. We we did not have that back then, but, you know, th- that was the first sign that, yes, we did have that, and no, you know, nobody dies at 50, and, you know, they don't, you know, stay home and bake pies when they turn 50, and they're, they're lost without their kids. You know, they're active and vital because, as my mother always likes to say, before you, there was me, and so <laughs> believe me when I tell you, I will be fine when you leave this house i can't miss you if you don't leave so <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of what you know the golden girls was really at the core all about and it was told in a very humorous way yeah yeah it's a really
0: you know a lovely story of the show like you talk about the themes of the show and also like a lot of behind the scenes stuff too and you get into the real relationships behind you know the four girls which is really like really touching and really fascinating um mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts is that you do a lot of, like, ranking. So you rank your favorite episodes for each of the main four characters. And then you rank them in terms of, like, writing, in terms of what they can teach you for comedy writing and structuring narrative and stuff like that. And uh, I was curious, like, what was that process like for you is it hard to pick favorites and rank them and did you have to do a lot of re-watching and stuff like that
1: oh yeah absolutely um you know when, when I first saw the golden girls I was much younger than I am right now I was a, I was a kid going into you know my teenage years and um I also came from a very different world than a lot of people did um you know I grew up in New York and I grew up in um I grew up, in, it, I started in Far Rockaway, and we, you know, when I was 10, we moved out to the island. So I was around people from different walks of life. I was around people who, you know, in, who were gay, who were in interracial relationships and and that sort of thing. And that that's kind of like hard to fathom today that that would be an outlier. But you have to understand that even people who are from, like, you know parts of the midwest or parts of the deep south they don't get to see that you know there are some people that that will that will email me and tell me like listen the first time i ever saw a black person was on my television screen i'm like well where the hell did you live so it's kind of like that's something that you know you have to take into consideration too that you're not you're not when you write you're not talking to yourself you're talking to everybody around you and you have to give them the full context of what it is you're talking about so i couldn't approach it from you know Ten-year-old me watching, you know, Sophia because she reminded me of my Sicilian grandmother on the, on the screen. I had to come at it as like, "Hey, I'm 45 years old at, at this point, and I am seeing it through a world of life experience, through uh, salient points of today, how it was today versus how it was back then." And I'm also seeing it as an entertainment industry professional, as I have been for you know several decades. So I had to. Take away the fandom of it all and really break it down into um, something that was very technical, almost clinical in a way. And I had to approach it from an objective eye and rewatch it as though I had just watched it for the first time um, with that level of life experience, knowing that this is what I had to do um, in terms of breaking it down from, for lack of a better moving an academic standpoint. So that, that was kind of my my process with that
0: nice one of the things that really like stood out to me about reading those sections as a, a whole is that you know because there's a good lesson i think for like writing character and conflict there in that like your best character moments are not going to come like from them encountering like the parts of themselves that already exist or are associated with them. It's like when they go outside their character, you know, and have to like expand who they are or encounter something that's not the norm, you know? So for Rose, it's episodes where she's like particularly maybe clever and, and empathetic. And for uh, Blanche is able, when she's like able to put her ego aside a little bit, you know, like it tests character in a way. Um, Do you have like a favorite character in terms of like um like who you feel like generated the most interesting stories?
1: You know, I I do. It would have to be Dorothy and Sophia. It would be tied for them. Mostly because that was, as I mentioned earlier, that's my family. Um, I identified greatly with Dorothy, especially as I got older, you know, that old hard scrabble. She was from Brooklyn, but you know, and I'm from Queens, but it's very much that five burrows type of no nonsense approach to life um, in living a life that was rich and full of different experiences and almost having like, she had a very biting sarcasm, but it was always tempered with love. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I think a lot of people miss about Dorothy. A lot of people look at her and they say, you know, she's so sarcastic. She's so hardcore. She's so hard nosed, but there was so much love in everything that she had said it was never she was never deliberately mean unless she was slighted first and that is something that i definitely um definitely definitely relate to in terms of who i am as a person you know sophia like i said that that's very much within my my family and And I said this in in another interview. It it amazed me that Dorothy and Sophia were played by B. Arthur and Estelle Getty, respectively, two Jewish women, and they got the Sicilian from Brooklyn thing down so well. It was amazing to me. And we're talking about that they did this at a time when there was no social media. There was no sort of, um, you know, ways to like do, how, how do you do research on Sicilians from Brooklyn at that time? and they just did it and it came so naturally to them and i identified it and you know being that that is my culture i would know the authenticity of it and when i was younger i was convinced that the um the actresses were themselves mm. Sicilian americans mm. so you can imagine that you know as i got older and you, you, know, exactly. you can knock me over further oh they're 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 jewish women from new york wow they really knocked that out um so that made me respect them both as as women and as actresses even more And so far as um Blanche and Rose. It's not that their stories weren't interesting to me; they were. They just gave me a, a strange perspective. Um, so that was it. It was more of a lesson for me because it gave me an insight into, you know, that type of like Southern Belle in the case of Blanche, or the stereotype of the Midwestern farm girl in the case of Rose. Hmm. Um, so it. So that's, that. That was the different perspective for me. Whereas I'm sure someone else who was from, for example, the Midwest would look, you know, would say that, you know, well, Dorothy and Sophia were kind of like the intro to what a New Yorker would act like for me or what a Midwest farm girl would be for Rosa. Those two were sort of like my lessons, whereas Dorothy and Sophia were more of like, whom I relate to.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think that speaks in an interesting way to like the broad appeal of the show, like, and like TV history at the time, you know, because like, they were appealing to sort of everybody, like every you know, people from most places in America could sort of like see themselves at least a little represented, Well, who were white, you know, could see themselves represented yes. <laughs> yes. with characters. Um, and resultantly, you know, and because there were fewer choices, like 30 million people would tune into those episodes, you know, which is like, oh, like, un- unrecreatable now, like they're, you yes. know, not absolutely do that. And it's just like such an interesting glimpse into like both broad tv history at the time and like the making of this one show that really was like super ahead of its time
1: isn't those numbers are not you know reproducible at this stage of the game Mm -hmm. is because we have streaming numbers Mm -hmm. and because we have things like binge watching Mm -hmm. um you have to remember that you know this is at a time where if you miss that episode unless you programmed your vhs to record it while you weren't home, you weren't going to see it except in reruns and you never knew when you were going to catch it. So there's a lot more anticipation behind it. So people would know, for example, if you had to be home at at Saturday night at nine o'clock to watch The Golden Girls, that's when you had to be home or you weren't going to see it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, now today, oh, I missed the episode, no problem. I can watch it tomorrow on Hulu, it's whatever. So people have a lot more of a lackadaisical approach to watching episodes when they premiere, except if you're me and you find out that, for example, Star Wars is premiering at 9 p.m. every Tuesday night on Disney. You guys believe at 8.59. I'm looking at that. That, that rope is like, here we go. <laughs> I might be an anomaly. But then again, I come from a different generation. But that is why that those numbers are not simply attainable at this stage of the game um, in terms of television.
0: I mean, I remember it myself too, like when I was like 15 and an X-Files mm-hmm. fan, like I would at 8 p.m. If I wasn't home, I start to get the sweats about like, if I'm going to see the new episode at nine, <laughs> I do have to wait till the summertime, you know, Yes,
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> and in a way too, that just made it like, you know, like such a cultural phenomenon too, in a way that like, you could walk into work probably. And, you know, so many of your coworkers would have also seen the episode. Whereas now, like, you know. You could be the only one, you know, watching in a, a TV show, you know, because it's on. Exactly.
1: Some... Those water cooler moments are another thing that just cannot be reproduced in this day and age because, you know, a lot of people are working remote, which, by the way, I love. Yeah. And um, there are a lot of people that just, you know, like you said, to your point of they watch it on their terms and not on everybody else. No more community around watching television anymore. Yeah. So that's really the bottom line. That's why. Yeah
0: one of the other uh things i love about it is that there's lots of like super interesting anecdotes um yes. one of one of which is my my favorite is that um lady die and freddie mercury used to watch the golden girls together yes, oh my god that was, was hilarious bit, to me a fly on that wall you know like
1: that. just oh had- my god yes and just just the thought of lady die like you know put turning it down I mean Freddie Mercury I can easily picture turning it down and like replacing it with like x-rated dialogue but Lady Di I mean the Princess Diana doing that was just like damn (laughs) you know that would have been amazing to listen to. So good
0: like where did you like learn things like that like what was your research like?
1: Oh god it was I would have to go to you know Libraries, and you know, support your local library. i let me be the one to tell you. Um, I would have to go to libraries. I spent so much time in the New York Public Library. It's like they almost was my first name at that point. Um, I did a lot of you know deep dives, a lot of internet research, a lot of um just reaching out to different people, different fans for leads, reading books. It was an exhaustive search, and it was a comprehensive search. And it created, um, it helped me create a, a different type of respect for folks who do that sort of thing for a living, um, who do that sort of hardcore research. Because as a journalist, you're not required to do, you know, hardcore research unless you're doing like an investigative piece and it involves, you know, um, months and months of uh that sort of thing but for for my purposes for what I do as an entertainment journalist that that doesn't really exist Mm -hmm. so that that gave me a whole different dimension and a whole different respect for those types of journalists um but yeah that's really what um where I started and where I ended it was always in a library I got the most out of my library research and it was I could not be more grateful Mm -hmm. that I live in New York And we have such a wealth of libraries, and I cannot say enough how much it's important for people to support their local libraries, no matter where they are in the world, Um, because it provides a wealth of knowledge. Even if you are from a major city like New York City, Mm -hmm. you need that centralized resource, um, because that will give you a whole new dimension that will not have existed prior.
0: Yeah, it opens so many doors. So we, we love yeah. to thank you. Your check is in the mail, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's B-E-R-N. Make sure you spelled it right.
0: <laughs> so I have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really also loved the insight into like the histories of B. Arthur and Rue McClanahan and Betty White and Estelle Getty. And what I found most fascinating was that they sort of like represent this era of like, this era of performer that like doesn't really quite exist anymore where like everybody was a triple threat you know because they can all sing they can all dance they can all act you know and like there was like a standardized like set of skills that you would have as a performer too you know and like investigating all of their connections to like the other performers at the time and all of the great guest actors you know who were on the episodes too like did you find yourself learning a lot about like also the like the deeper history of our entertainment and sort of like where things started out. and
1: Yeah, I did. Because in, 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 the, in one of the first introductory chapters, I talk about just really how, um, the evolution of women in the entertainment industry were and it was actually betty white who you know god rest her soul she was actually a groundbreaker in that regard she was one of the first women to have her own show that was nationally syndicated which was absolutely impossible to achieve in the 1950s she was the one who was breast you know breast hacks behind the scenes you know learning the ins and outs of the business at a time that not only was the business very nascent, but that women just simply did not have those types of roles. For all that, you know, there is this new sort of anti intellectualism surrounding. Uh, the tradwife movement which again i also talk about in the book in mm-hmm. that we should all just go back to the 1950s when women were at home making sandwiches for their husbands and their kids and this is first of all that is intellectually dishonest mm-hmm. 30% of the women at that time worked outside of the home and that number went up exponentially as each decade passed that's the first thing. The second thing was, was that even for women, like my grandmother, my as long as I can remember, women all the way as far back as my great grandmother from, on my mom's side, they were from Naples. On my dad's side, they were from Sicily. Um, they worked. My great grandmother came here on my mom's side with nothing but 13 kids of her own, four kids of her sisters and opened up pizza parlors and just put all her kids to work. At eight years old, my grandmother was making pizza pies. Um, I only saw my mom working, um, mm-hmm. even on my my father's side. You know, my great grandmother worked worked the fields. My grandmother worked the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she came here, obviously she didn't have as many opportunities, but she would take in sewing pieces because she didn't speak English, so she would sew. So this sort of this sort of philosophy of oh, you know, women were back in the kitchen back then. That is intellectually dishonest. No, they weren't. What you were seeing on TV was nothing more than advertisement because it was a way for women to go back home after the Second World War and the boys came home so Mm -hmm. that they boys could get their jobs back because the women were that good at what they were doing and they needed to send them back. So that's the first thing. And the second thing that I learned, too, was just really um, the tenacity of the four women but most especially of Betty White and of B Arthur because in addition to Betty White being breast tax and learning the ins and outs of the Hollywood industry you had B Arthur that was climbing the ranks in the armed forces speaking of the second world war and you know, she married a man and, you know, she did what she was supposed to do. And she just decided, hey, you know what? I ain't happy with you. You gotta go. Bye. But I'm gonna keep your name because, um, you know, be Arthur and that's what's gonna make me famous. Thanks for the name, bro. Peace. <laughs> and she, Like, that, that to me was like, oh, I just love that. Like, you make me miserable. You gotta go. And this is in the 1940s, you know? Women just didn't do that, you know? You make me miserable. You gotta go, but I'm keeping your name because that's what's gonna make me famous. Bye. Like, I, I just love that. Um, that sort of thing is what really inspires me as a woman, because even in the 21st century, with all the strides that we've made, with all that we see women in positions of power, with all that we have, all these wonderful things, and it's not unusual for women to have achieved as much, if not more, than the men in their field, we still have, as I said, the anti-intellectual you know intellectual and the intellectual dishonesty of things like the Trad wife, wife Movement, put them back in the kitchen, and sort of like this regressiveness. And that's what makes like things like the golden girls even more salient, because if you know where you come from, you will always know where you're going. And that's where we came from. Those women knew what it was to be shoved back into the kitchen and that time at against their will, because the boys needed to get back to work. And if you knew that, then you'll be damned if that's what you're going to go back to. You will be damned if that's what you're going to go back to because I mentioned, you know, just even other things in the book. The Violence Against Women Act wasn't passed until the Golden Girls was in full swing. This, Mm -hmm. by the way, was something else that I addressed about in In Living Color, that um, what we know as apartheid in South Africa, for example, apartheid basically was still going on when In Living Color was on the air. And it did not get abolished until three months after In Living Color went off the air. That's another thing that, you know, when when you put these shows into the context of their times and you think about historic things, the falling of the Berlin Wall, the, the end of apartheid, the Violence Against Women Act, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, when you put these momentous things into the context of these shows and you realize what was going on, those shows Whether it be living In Living Color, The Golden Girls, or even Law and Order, whatever it is, they take on a different level, a different tenor, a different import, a different understanding. And it makes those laughs even more both bittersweet and meaningful because it's like, my God, after all this time, you realize that 1985 was almost, you know, we're going into almost 40 years ago, almost 50 years ago at this point, Mm -hmm. you know? 1985 was almost 40 years ago, and 1975 was fit, almost 50 years ago. You think, and, and, and hi, Gen X here, we're still alive. Yeah. We, we know what that was. like. You And that, that's kind of, again, the, that was, the, you know, to close this out, that was the approach that I took. Mm-hmm. You may not remember, but I damn sure do. And if you don't learn, this is where you're going to be back to.
0: My gosh, yeah, that is like a lovely wrapping up place because I think it really talks to like the imports of the show and like the yeah. attitudes of the people making it and the actors themselves, you know, because I think all the women themselves were super progressive and mm-hmm. enough so that like they weren't afraid to portray themselves as the closed minded one, you know, in order to teach the lesson sometimes like because black. Like, yes homophobic sometimes. Rose has like an AIDS scare in like an extremely remarkable episode that you talk about at length, you know, and it really like, mm-hmm. it's very admirable. I think like it's really, yeah. really
1: yeah, But so, you'll, you'll have to understand that they also were templates of what was going on at the time. You couldn't have them all be progressive. Yeah. That, that, that's just impossible because that's not what real life was. You couldn't have them all be homophobic mm-hmm. or sexist or ignorant about AIDS, Mm -hmm. because that also would not be realistic. You needed that Mm. balance of the two. So that's kind of, um, where we're at. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about this book. Oh, I loved reading it. And I'm very excited for all of our patrons to read it.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, um, Yeah, like like I said, again, closing out with support your local library folks, including the Syosset Public Library, because I'm Our Lady of Mercy, class of 1995. I'm very familiar with the Syosset Public Library, and it is an invaluable resource for residents of Syosset. Not only can you get the best books, newspapers, and everything else there. But what most people don't know is that their library card entitles them to free passes to museums and other local places of interest. Yes. My local library, for example, gives you free passes to the Intrepid Museum, to uh, the Vanderbilt Planetarium, and a bunch of other places, which is very important for the kids. I don't know what Seasset Public Library offers, but stop on by down there and find out.
0: Yeah, we got some of those too. I know we have the Intrepid. So yeah, go to our website. Check it out. Thank you very much for that.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Jen. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. It's very
0: Talk to you it's time to close this chapter of turn the page join us for the next episode